DBT skills often would be helpful first because people who are having a lot of distress tolerance issues need training in some basic skills about how to manage when they're feeling emotionally unstable. And that's what DBT is about. It's about learning those skills for distress tolerance, learning those skills of mindfulness, learning interpersonal effective skill, effectiveness skills too. Thomas Edison, Richard Branson, John F. Kennedy, Mozart, Michael Jordan, Will Smith. That sounds like a list of highly successful titans in a variety of vocations. Why is it that we rarely hear that they have or had ADHD? And you know what we hear even less about? Serena Williams, Emma Watson, Mel Robbins, Whoopi Goldberg, Agatha Christie, Aaron Brockovich, Cher. Yeah, the successful women navigating ADHD. And that's exactly why I started this podcast, ADHD for Smartass Women. I'm your host, Tracy Atsuka. I'm a lawyer, not a doctor, a lifelong student, now a coach. I'm also the creator of Your ADHD Brain is A-OK, a system that helps people like you figure out what they should do with their life. And we're here today to talk ADHD, your strengths, your symptoms, your workarounds, and how you proudly stand out instead of trying to fit in. I credit my ADHD for some of my greatest gifts. And you know what? I spy a happier life for you too. So without further ado, a shiny new episode is starting now. Hello, I am your host, Tracy Otsuka. Thank you so much for joining me here for episode number 209 of ADHD for Smartass Women. I hope you'll subscribe to this podcast and our newsletter over at tracyoutsuka.com. If you're a regular listener, you likely know about my signature program, Your ADHD Brain is A-OK. We call it A-OK for short. This is the six-week program that I built off of my patented cartography system to help ADHD women figure out what they should do with their life. We know that ADHD is completely misnamed, right? We don't have a deficit of attention. We have a surplus of attention. We're interested in so much, which often means that we struggle with trying to figure out which of the many interests that we do have is actually the one that we should pursue. With AOK, we start from the inside out and figure out who you really are, what's important to you, what you value, what your strengths, passions, superpowers, and purpose are, and then you're going to build your life around that. I mean, who cares where you fit in, right? You're not meant to fit in. You are meant to stand out, and I'm going to show you how to do that. So AOK includes live office hours with me, a community, the AOK system, worksheets. You'll create your own AOK intelligence report. I promise you it's a lot of fun. So we're going to start on Tuesday, January 24th. We'll have our first office hours on Wednesday, the 25th, and every Wednesday after that for the next six weeks. What a great way to finally discover 
who you are exactly and what you're meant to do with your life. And what a great way to start the new year, right? So if you sign up with the code HOLIDAYS100, you'll get $100 off of your ADHD brain is A-OK until the program is full. If you're interested in giving yourself a gift over the holidays, you can find more information at tracyoutsuka.com forward slash A-OK. And don't forget to use the code HOLIDAYS100. I'd love to have you join us. So now let's get on to our podcast. My purpose is always to show you who you are and then inspire you to be it. In the thousands of ADHD women that I've had the privilege of meeting, I've never met a one that wasn't truly brilliant at something. Not one. So for these reasons, I am just delighted to introduce you to Vanessa Garelkin. <laughs> I knew I'd mess it up again. Um, and I mean, again, I'm delighted to introduce you to Vanessa Garelkin again. We talked to Vanessa a couple of months ago about occupational therapy. And as we were wrapping it up, it became very clear to me that in Vanessa, we also had an expert in emotional dysregulation, RSD, and dialectical behavioral therapy, also known as DBT. But we had no more time. So once we were done, I asked Vanessa if she would come back. And lucky for us, she said yes. So let me introduce her formally once again. Vanessa has a BA from Brandeis University and a master's degree in occupational therapy from NYU. An experienced occupational therapist, Vanessa has worked as the administrator of NYU's Department of Orthopedic Surgery and as a senior vice president of operations at a New York Planned Parenthood affiliate. Vanessa and her family, which includes an ADHD husband and ADHD son, relocated to sunny Arizona in 2014. There she joined the Mayo Clinic to work with outpatients with chronic illness and stressors. She is now an instructor at the Mayo Medical School and the Mayo Cancer Center and is an associate in their Academy of Academic Excellence. Vanessa has a private telehealth practice and provides both treatment and coaching services through video visits. She is passionate about occupational therapy as a key to unlocking the potential of people with ADHD. Welcome, Vanessa. Did I get all of that right? You did, and it's like such a boost to my self-esteem. <laughs> I appreciate that. It's so apropos for this particular episode because self-esteem is really important for people with ADHD. Well, and especially imposter complex, right? So many of us struggle with that. And what I hear a lot when I have guests on is they hear everything they've accomplished and it's like, wow, is that really me? Mm -hmm. yes, yeah, that's very true. You know, and I would say to the audience, it's a very good idea to make a list of things that are accomplishments for you because it's really nice to read them or even have somebody read them back to you. And sometimes accomplishments do not have to be enormous things. They could be, I got out of bed all the days of the week, or um, I went to work on time each day this week. Anything really, it's really important to acknowledge the things you're good at because actually that's really protective to people. And we have such a bias towards negativity that I I'm trying to remember someone today. Oh, a very good friend of mine. She happens to be a psychologist, too. And she was talking about something that she did, that she accomplished, literally went from that to, but my numbers are down. You know, my numbers weren't good. But she had reached a new threshold. 
And I was like, you know what? If this happens to psychologists, it happens to all of us. (laughs) That's very true. I mean, I think sometimes it seems like when there's a therapist or a coach or someone professionally helping you, um, that that person might have no problems. But that's far from the truth. Everyone is human. I certainly appreciate a shot in the arm myself. And um, I mean, well, it's good to be vaccinated, but I mean like a self-esteem shot in the arm. Yeah. And um, and I think that it's, I try to really be honest about that with people I work with because I think that being unreal is not helpful to folks. You know, it's people struggle sometimes. Well, and I think it's inspiring for them when they see that the person that's helping them also struggles with maybe not the same thing they struggle with, but other things, right? They're human. And Mm -hmm. that it's part of the human condition. Unfortunately, I think it's more a part of the human ADHD condition. So Mm. you probably realize by now that we're not going to start with our usual ADHD story first. So if you're interested in hearing Vanessa's, you can go to episode number 198 of ADHD for Smartass Women, and I'll link it in the show notes. So what I really wanted to talk to Vanessa about today is emotional dysregulation, RSD, and of course, dialectical behavioral therapy. So if it's okay, Vanessa, can we start by talking about ADHD and emotion. So what do we need to know? Why is it that we struggle more with emotion, even though it's not in the DSM? Oh, that was a big question. Let's see. So, I mean, certainly people with ADHD often struggle with, you know, for lack of a better word, fitting in into neurotypical settings. And more people are quote unquote neurotypical or or appear to be neurotypical than those with ADHD. And so from very early in people's lives, if they're um, living with ADHD, uh, they're not getting it right. They're not sitting down the right way. They're, They're fidgeting. They're doing things that people who are don't have ADHD or don't understand ADHD find annoying or frustrating or hard to understand. And so there's early, you know, for lack of a better word, trauma to people with ADHD. There's a lot of being rejected. Uh, There's a lot of having to mask certain behaviors or certain types of, um, you know, repetitive things that make people feel comfortable and safe. And so I think that's one of the reasons, but there's also others I don't want to go on too long because the neurology is is interesting as well and still evolving. So what you're basically talking about is shame and guilt and the fact that um, I don't know when this study was done. I think it was a study at Harvard like quite a while ago that someone with ADHD will will receive 20,000 more critical messages by their 12th birthday than those without ADHD. So it makes sense that it would be really hard to develop a positive self-concept, right? Absolutely. And, you know, positive self-concept, as we were talking about a few minutes ago, is really protective to people when things don't go well. So if your history is, uh, that's not right, uh, you need to do that over, why can't you be quiet, why can't you sit still, that's a favorite, why are you late, why are you so disorganized or messy or what have you, 
Or why are you such a perfectionist? By the way, that can show up in ADHD too. So all of those things really feed into difficulties with emotion. And frankly, in my practice, people come to me and they say, I want help with my ADHD. And certainly we focus some on that. Um, but a lot of what we do is talk about emotional regulation and managing difficult feelings and and skills for living, which is why dialectical behavioral therapy comes in as such an important and helpful tool for people with ADHD, in my opinion. Yeah. And I think that um, so many of us don't even understand that emotion, dysregulated emotion is a huge part of ADHD, even though it's not listed in the DSM-5. Yeah, it's certainly the personal experience of virtually everybody I have known and worked with who um, has ADHD. And, you know, when we talk about dialectical behavioral therapy, because that's like a mouthful or DBT, as it's known for the listeners, what we're really talking about is learning a set of skills that allows someone to hold two disparate ideas inside of themselves at once and two disparate feelings. And oftentimes for people with ADHD, it's I'm disorganized and messy and I'm not like uh, the person, the average person who I'm sitting next to. And I have great creative skills and lots to offer this world. So if both of those things can exist at once, that really helps people to manage emotional dysregulation. But that's a big, tall order. Okay. So the other thing that I'm thinking, Vanessa, is as far as the emotion piece could also be our tendency to overreact. And I think that that can be good and it can be bad, right? Like I love being around ADHD people because we're so energetic. And, you know, I mean, people will say we're overexcitable, but that can be a good thing too. You know, it's fun to be around people who are always, you know, always up for the new challenge, the new thing. And, but it can also be, it can also be difficult. And is that because we struggle to distinguish because of our hyper arousal or, you know, our nervous system, we struggle to be, to distinguish between what's truly a dangerous threat and what are minor problems. So everything can sometimes, you know, feel like it's, it's major. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about ADHD, I, I think sometimes people, because it can be seen and manifested so easily, you know, you can you can see what's happening with someone who has ADHD. Like you see they might be fidgeting or they might have difficulty with deadlines or time. But really what's happening is that's not a deliberate behavior on the part of someone with ADHD. That's coming from their neurological makeup. And what you're talking about is like a parasympathetic nervous system situation where fight or flight gets kicked off and a lot of anxiety comes up when executive function issues come into play. That sounded like a lot of jargon. Did that make sense? It all made sense to me, but... Yeah. I mean, it made sense to, to me. Basically, what you're saying is that we kind of have a dysregulated um, nervous system, right? We're, we're more excitable. And to add to that, you know, I don't think a lot of people think of uh, being dysregulated as being in pain, but it's along the same circuits. And so when people are dysregulated, they're hurting. They are feeling the same things oftentimes in their bodies 
that they might feel if they, you know, I don't know, bumped into the corner of a table. Uh, they may not experience it exactly the same way, but it is the same neurological circuitry where people are experiencing pain and dysregulation. Those things are hard to distinguish neurologically. That's really interesting. And so I guess that's why they say that we don't have more emotion than anyone else. We just feel more emotion, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think that oftentimes, and I think last time when you and I uh, spoke, we talked about the coexisting diagnoses that can come up um, with uh, ADHD, which include things like being uh, a highly sensitive person mm -hmm. or um, other areas of emotionality could, you know, come up and not only emotionality, but things like depression and anxiety and other, um, you know, related issues. So sometimes when you're dealing with ADHD, there's also other overlay of problems. And that becomes really a difficult thing for uh, people with ADHD to tease out and their providers and their families and their friends. And so the more you know, I think the better, because we don't necessarily have to even know the name of what's going on if, as long as we can just say, okay, there's a lot of dis regulation here. So let's work on trying some emotional regulation skill building. Okay. So then the last mood challenge, um, and I, I understand this is specific to ADHD, is rejection-sensitive dysphoria, RSD. We talk about this a lot. Can mm. you explain what's RSD? Uh, RSD, I just want to say it's funny because earlier in my career, RSD also means something else in medicine, but it's so interestingly related and it's no longer called that. RSD is also um, reflex sympathetic dystrophy, which is now known as uh, CRPS, which is strangely enough, a pain condition. The mm. reason I bring that up is that RSD is an emotional pain condition and it's where a slight or a criticism or being rejected results in horrendous pain, really difficult darkness and feelings of inadequacy that um, some folks really have a hard time pulling themselves out. Whereas if someone isn't as sensitive to rejection, they might say, oh, I guess that person doesn't like me. A person with rejection-sensitive dysphoria may literally be in pain. They might want to go to bed and go home and cry and then really review things over and over again because the situation is so difficult and then really come down hard on themselves as well. And wouldn't it make sense that if so many of us are highly sensitive in whatever area, because I mean, I'm highly sensitive in some areas, you know, any torture or movies or like all of that. But then mm. in other areas, I'm not at all. Of course, I feel the criticism and I probably take it on when it's not even there, but I'm able to power through it. I've always been like that. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, wouldn't it make sense that if, like I said, so many of us are highly sensitive in specific areas, that we would be more sensitive to criticism? Because we, we would actually be able to feel other people's criticism, whereas other people couldn't even feel that. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think that's a very beautiful description of it. It's, you know, it may not happen under all circumstances. Like some people with ADHD may be very good at dating and it may not bother them that to get rejected a hundred times. Uh, <laughs> whereas other people, it might just be completely demoralizing to the extent that, you know, they, they're on some dating app and they don't get any 
kind of feedback from anybody and they're just like, forget it. I can't stand this. This is so painful. So every, you know, people are individuals and that's why uh, people need, in my opinion, a lot of individual help, particularly if they're dealing with RSD. And so it may not be in all areas, but it could be like in social areas or work areas or school areas. And each of those areas, then the person with ADHD and RSD will find themselves kind of having a specific response that comes up over and over again and gets very scary. And then they anticipate the response before it even happens, which then puts them in fight or flight, which is very hard as well. So it becomes a cycle and we want to break that cycle. Okay. So I just want to mention, just so everybody knows that, remember, emotion isn't mentioned in the DSM. And that means that RSD isn't either. I don't even think there've been any studies on RSD. But I believe it's important to discuss this because so many of our ADHD women completely relate to RSD. And apparently, and maybe you can add to this, but it was written about a great deal 40 or 50 years ago. Um, I think it was Paul Wender who, what, they call him like the godfather of ADHD. He -hmm. felt that you needed RSD to get the diagnosis of ADHD. So, mm-hmm. you know, today I probably, or then I probably wouldn't have been diagnosed with ADHD because I don't feel like, I mean, a little bit of RSD, but, but I really don't struggle with it. Mm-hmm. But the way ADHD is diagnosed today, RSD isn't always there, right? Or mm-hmm. it's hidden, so it's ignored by, you know, researchers, I guess. So it's not in the DSM. Mm-hmm. I think very much hidden. I think this is a shame-based thing that often comes up for people with ADHD, the feeling of being so demoralized by a criticism or a correction or a mistake or a rejection, like a a rejection from a friend or a rejection from a a romantic partner or potential. Um, And these things in, in healthcare terms, they don't turn out to be life and death situations. And so they don't get as much attention, but they certainly affect people's quality of life. I'm betting the listeners, you know, might be nodding their head and saying, well, that really, it does, it's really ruins things a lot of the times for me. And I want help with that. Um, But the doctor or the whomever may not, that may not be their main focus. Their focus may be like, well, we have to help you get to work on time, or we have to help you to not fail out of school or what have you. Absolutely. You had kind of tied ADHD and trauma, which, which I love. And so I want to know what you think about this. In my experience, I believe that RSD is the result of ADHD and trauma. The women who seem to struggle the most with their ADHD seem to have a lot of trauma, whether we're talking developmental trauma, violence, you know, or as you said, those small cuts that are often seen over time when you're Mm -hmm. struggling in a school system, if you have ADHD and learning challenges, and all of that adds up to like a big trauma, right? So (laughs) we're going to keep him in. I love it. Okay. Okay. I'm so sorry. The the gardeners are out. Okay. Link. Oh my goodness. What's okay. her? Hey, what? it's life, right? This is happening right in my, in my office, which is in my home. And if anyone ever is working with me, they will occasionally get the dog barking, which is actually, you know, nothing's perfect. Anyway, sorry about that. Okay, wait. <laughs> uh, we have to go on this tangent. What kind of dog? Okay, that I actually have three dogs. That's a little Chihuahua Min Pin who was barking. I also have a Yorkie Poo and another deer faced 
chihuahua. They're all adorable. We have other animals as well. We're a very animal family. We have a cat and a bird as well. Me too. I love dogs. I love dogs. They're such great therapy, by the way. Let me just put this in there. If somebody with ADHD hesitates to get a pet, I would say think about getting a pet because pets are wonderful for RSD. They don't care what you're wearing. They don't care if you didn't brush your teeth today. They don't care what that mean person said to you or that you got an F on the test. Like that animal is there for you and they love you and you love them. Absolutely. And just the, the, oh, what is it? What is it called? Like the motion of like petting them and it's soothing, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Totally. I mean, you know, when you're talking about parasympathetic activity, it just kind of like, boom, brings it down. Yes. And there have been studies actually that looking into a dog's eyes helps like, bring up oxytocin, like the feel-good yes. chemical, um, the hug chemical. I so, didn't know yeah. that was I didn't know that was looking in their eye. I thought it was petting them. It probably is petting them too, oh, but them. I'm referring myself to actually the uh, a study that my son who has ADHD pointed out to me because he is a true uh a true like thorough animal lover. He loves all animals and I think he finds a lot of comfort in them. They're not going to demand that he sits still or not, doesn't bounce his leg or twirl his hair, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And, you know, they take some work. So you're focusing more on the dog and less on yourself. True. And it also, meaning like if, you know, they need to go on a walk, like you, they get you out, right? You're in nature. Frankly, they're part of nature. They are. And I, that's enough. I mean, that's been studied a lot. The fact that people who have dogs tend to get more exercise or movement. I was kind of going through your more recent podcasts. I, I think you were talking about movement with someone mo- very recently, um, and movement versus exercise and how you can call them that. Right. And, um, so yeah, uh, dogs require movement of their owners. So they are just an automatic, guarantee that because you love this animal, you're going to want the animal to get its exercise or its movement in. Oh, I completely agree. I don't know what I'd do without my, well, I now have two dogs. (laughs) (laughs) It's a big deal to have a puppy. And that's the other thing, right? So I understand, Tracy, you have puppies right now, which is a lot of work. But, you know, I would also say, Um, I know this isn't like an animal podcast, but I'll say older dogs can be adopted from shelters and they come like all with potty training. You don't even have to do the trained. Yeah, right. And they are less likely to be adopted. So, you know, we could just make a, a, you know, a little plea to the audience. Hey, if you're looking for a pet, think about one that's already trained. Then you don't need to organize that part of it. You can just enjoy them immediately without the potty training. (laughs) Absolutely. My problem is my husband is allergic. And for 25 years, Mm. we've had all kinds of, you know, big, Mm. big dogs with lots of dander. And we just kind of decided, okay, we can't do this anymore, which is Mm -hmm. why we actually did try to go to the shelter, not for this last puppy, but for the dog before. And, um, we're going off on a tangent here. Anyways, yes. <laughs> okay, I want to go back. I just want to wrap up because I asked you that question and I'm dying to know what your response is. And so my question was that, you know, from what I've seen, I believe that RSD is the result of ADHD and trauma because the women that I meet that struggle the most with their ADHD, they also have a lot of trauma. 
And I mean, you can understand kind of what you were saying before. If you've been criticized over and over again, you become really sensitive to being criticized. And you might also get oppositional, right? I mean, that's probably mm-hmm. what I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm curious what you think about that. Well, I think that this is an area that I would really hope that researchers are going to pay a whole lot more attention to. Um, I, I think, first of all, you know, when we define trauma, we can think of trauma. Oftentimes people speak of trauma as capital T trauma, like mm-hmm. your life was threatened. Mm-hmm. You thought you might die or little t trauma, which is that one that's um, sort of like death by a thousand cuts, if Mm -hmm. you will, like the little things over and over again, that becomes more complex trauma. And so I think that people with ADHD, especially in my experience as a clinician for a long time, I don't really run into many people who haven't experienced some of that little t trauma in growing up just because oftentimes they're late diagnosed, particularly women, as yeah. as uh, probably the audience knows. And so they're just left, uh, people who are not diagnosed, but don't, who feel other are just left with a lot of, why am I like this? You know, what's wrong with me, which feels threatening in the world. So, you know, ADHD and trauma, I think they are very closely linked. And certainly in my practice, people respond well to the same types of treatment as people who have trauma. So, I mean, I think they're inexorably linked. I haven't done that personal research myself and I am not in the position to do that anymore, but maybe um, this is a call to research for somebody out there. In your experience though, when you have a client who is really struggling with their ADHD, has there always been some trauma there? I can't say always, but I can't think of a client or patient of mine who does not come to me with ADHD, like, and they're, they kind of present saying, I have ADHD and I want to get my life together. And then the instant we um, start, I do my evaluation, I hear all the emotional overlay and things that have happened in the past. And it almost always becomes about how they're feeling about their life and how they're feeling about how they're functioning. And that plays a lot into their experience. Is that Does that answer your question? It totally answers the question. I just, uh, I, you know, I think of my son who is so bright and he studies so much. And when you hear him talk on a subject, he knows it cold. But then when he has to go sit and take an exam on it, He just never does as well as students who study a lot less. And so no matter what happens, he knows how smart he is. He still thinks that, oh, in the back of his mind, that must mean because this is the way the system's been set up that I'm not as smart. And it just, it kills me. Yeah. And I, it's actually a really, you could tell your son for me, it's a wrong assessment. Those two things aren't the same thing. Not being great at taking a test is not the same as not having a skill. And in the real world, um, you know, perhaps being a like airport controller person in in the sky, you know, where they're like landing planes, maybe that's not a great career for somebody with ADHD. It might be, by the way, they could use their hyper focus, but maybe somebody who has a lot of test anxiety. So like in the moment anxiety wouldn't be good with with those situations in their world as they're growing up, but they can be plenty good at things that take the expertise that they learn and 
particularly when they study really hard and really apply themselves like your son you're describing there. Well, and the thing is, though, in the real world, so he is um, really interested in investment banking and the bar is so high Mm -hmm. as far as, you know, how they even to hire for like a summer internship. Mm-hmm. And it just kills me because if you hear him speak and he, and he did a summer internship last year and he was so he's so interested and he's so creative in, you know, the strategies and the things that he suggests versus kind of more the linear brain who's got the top grades from, you know, they want the Ivy League schools, all of this. And it just I keep wondering at what point are these industries that have these, what am I trying to say? These industries that have these requirements going to realize that they are excluding a big percentage of these brilliant brains because Mm -hmm. of, you know, this um, linear kind of um, hiring process that they go through. Yeah. I mean, like there are realities, like, you know, I I think with investment banking and finance, there's things like the series seven test or mm-hmm. taking a CPA exam and, and things of that nature. Um, and, and I think those can be real stumbling blocks. I don't know whether those industries necessarily will change that quickly, but I think that, um, people with ADHD who want to get into fields that are more like traditionally required testing, a lot of testing and, you know, sort of basically being very much within a rigid standard may want to kind of go the creative route of getting involved in, in those things and may not be able to go the traditional route, um, of like getting in because they passed their series seven or they passed there's, there's another series. I can't remember, but they passed this test or that test. Maybe they go and they work for, I don't know, for a hedge fund doing things adjacent to people who are doing things like that and use their networking and social skills to get in there and then kind of work. I don't want to say backwards, but like, you know, back up and then do the things they need to do while, you know, that now that they have more confidence and more backing of the very people that they're trying to work with and impress. You know, what's interesting is last year he, um, and then we're going to go back to what we need to be talking about. (laughs) The internship that he got, um, it was a, a, a bank from the UK and they actually had all of their applicants take a Pymetrics test, which was more of a personality test. And what they did is they looked at their best hires. They took those personality traits. And then when they were um, hiring for interns, they tried to match them. And mm-hmm. so that is how he got that internship. But that seems to be really rare. And so, you know, my thought was, you know, we need to develop a network of people in all industries that have neurodivergent brains that have been able to be successful so that these kids have a network, you know, of people that they could ask questions of and, you know, get help to figure out, okay, how do I navigate this? Because I I really believe they're just leaving so much talent out because of these, you know, outmoded, you know, ways that they hire. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you look at the process of applying to college, uh, you know, when I was applying to college like 30 years ago, it was unheard of to not take the SAT. You know? yeah. And so I would hope that we would see as society gets more informed about 
neurodivergence, um, mental health issues, that maybe some of this is going to, um, I don't know, to, to remit, if you will, like to come, that it, that it will stop. I don't know if it's going to happen that quickly. I love your idea of networking. And I know that you do that with your Facebook group. And, and I think that that's the beginning of a network, you know, people being able to help each other um, understand where the opportunities are and so on. And grassroots is a very good way to organize this type of stuff. So I wouldn't uh, knock the Facebook group. <laughs> oh. you know, I think it's that the neurotypicals have all the keys right now, right? Yeah. And so they want to keep it. I mean, from education on, they want to keep it, the keys to their fiefdom exactly the way it is because that's how they've succeeded. And so I think that's what's hard about education too, right? These mm -hmm. professors who've gone to all these, you know, their Ivy League schools, they've been at the top of their class. It's worked for them. So they can't mm -hmm. understand that, well, maybe it hasn't worked for other students who are just as bright as they are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So anyway, and, you know, yeah. And actually generationally, I think things are changing. Like if they are, you know, um, we're talking about differences in point of view. I don't think that like people who are my parents' age, you know, we're talking about ADHD in school. So I see there will be, I believe, and I want to say to the audience, I think there will be this sort of evolution over time, probably not fast enough for us to be satisfied but I do believe that as more people get into the marketplace um, who are not the exact picture of what, you know, everybody thinks is exactly the thing for that job description or whatever, I think that's going to make change over time. It just, it can't happen quick enough because there's a lot of people out there who are so talented, but get closed out of certain fields because of the requirements. And I think that what's really kicked it to the forefront is the internet, because clearly the kind of person who is successful in that area, in tech, that's a really different person often than, you know, who's really successful in school. So. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's like literally conferences of people who call themselves disruptors. And I mean, sometimes that's uh, not a good thing, but <laughs> I think in a lot of in a lot of ways, being a disruptor is a good thing. The status quo doesn't work for people who have talents that are outside of the neurotypical realm. And instead of people who have neuro um, atypia, who aren't, who aren't as typical, um, having to bend to that, I'm seeing more of it literally on the internet where people say, you know, I'm doing this the way I can do it because that's, I'm good at it that way. Not the way where they say like, sit in your chair right. from eight to five. <laughs> Exactly. So what we're trying to say basically is that the systems are what are, is archaic. It is not us. <laughs> That's true. We're I ahead of the, you know, we're leading the charge. Absolutely. And I think that like, you know, your podcast and people talking about ADHD and that frankly, the people AD, who with ADHD are not broken people. They are people who have different skills, who come to the table bringing something important. Evolutionarily, people with ADHD are out there. So I don't think this is like a disease process. It's like the way some people are. And those people can be really excellent at a lot of things that people who are more typical in their thinking and non-creative aren't as good at. And so we just have to find the way to plug into those skills. Yep. And those skills are really needed in today's environment in so many different areas. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm sure it was a lot harder, you know, when you took one job, like in the 50s, you took one job and you stayed there your entire career. I don't even know how ADHD people survived then. 
Well, no, I can't, I can't. I honestly can't imagine it, but I think the world was structured a lot differently. And I think, frankly, the demands for people over time became really, really untenable. And then we had this pandemic. I don't know. A lot of things are changing. I think we're in a moment of lux in the world from the pandemic and um, with more people working at home and having diverse sort of schedules. Those things are really good for people, I think, with, with ADHD and other types of neurodivergence. Absolutely. Okay. So we did the ADHD thing and we went all over the place. We're going to go back now. What is dialectical behavioral therapy? Okay, so dialectical behavioral therapy is an approach where skills are taught to people who have difficulties regulating their emotions and having, uh, they also have difficulties with interpersonal effectiveness and basically living in the world um, in a way that is effective. And so it's, it's a, it's an approach that was developed by somebody by the name of uh, a social worker by the name of Marsha Linehan to address borderline personality disorder because the treatments uh, that she encountered, and I believe she is identified as a person with uh, who is in remission from borderline personality disorder. She just wasn't finding the treatments that were needed, and those treatments are very skill based, as well as needing trauma therapy, also. I have to say, I don't know if that was confusing. Let me say one wrap up sentence. So DBT is the skill package. Trauma therapy is separate because people can have individual trauma that they need to process through and no amount of deep breathing will get somebody through uh, a need to process trauma. So those two things are separate. And I think sometimes people feel get resentful of DBT skill training if they're not also treated uh, for whatever trauma and difficulty is in the background that may be causing difficulty learning life skills. Ah, so it's it's like anything, really. You know, it's really hard to treat the ADHD if you haven't addressed the underlying trauma. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you can do both. So mm-hmm. and even at the same time, because DBT is a set of skills where people learn to interact effectively how to manage themselves and their emotions in the world and in relationships, uh, both effectively and creatively, and how to use mindfulness to approach things in a different way than being, let's say, impulsive about emotions or actions. And so that can be happening. Skills training can be happening right next to also processing traumatic events, but they don't match each other uh, entirely because, you know, sometimes like if someone's having a panic attack, you can't tell them um, in that moment, like they shouldn't be upset. Like that's, or, or that they should sort of work on their emotional regulation skills in that particular moment. They, they need to be able to be upset by something and go through those emotions I hope that makes sense. It's kind of complicated in its own way. Yeah. So I'm trying to understand. um, So if someone has trauma to process, you're saying, and let's say it's serious trauma, big T Mm -hmm. trauma, you're saying that you can do DBT at the same time. You don't have to start with the processing of the trauma. 
Yeah, as a matter of fact, and again, this is my opinion, and mm-hmm. I'm neither a psychiatrist or a psychologist. I'm an occupational therapist, so I'm, you know, skills driven. So know that that is my bias. But I believe, and I talk about this a lot with patients and even on like Instagram and everything, that DBT skills, um, often would be helpful first because people who are having a lot of distress tolerance issues need training in some basic skills about how to manage when they're feeling emotionally unstable. And that's what DBT um, is about. It's about learning those skills for distress tolerance, learning those skills of mindfulness, learning interpersonal effective skill, effectiveness skills too. That makes so much sense because then what you're doing is at least giving that person some semblance of control over their emotions, right? Like some skill that they can mm-hmm. at least try. Yeah. And it's important to note that um, in DBT, we want to validate hard, strong, difficult, painful emotions And at the same time, that's the dialectic. We want to say, yes, it's painful. Yes, it's difficult. And we can't punch the wall. We can't throw the phone. We can't just yell at the teacher. We can't just quit our job. So like, what are we going to do? And and what are the skills we're going to use for crisis and lesser crisis or just anger? Because oftentimes, and I'm, I'm kind of bleeding over, if you will, into uh, borderline personality disorder, um, which is like a a cluster B diagnosis in in terms of issues that people have. But I feel like the skills that people need when they have uh, personality traits or disorder issues very much can be used by people with ADHD, even though it's not the same diagnosis. People need life skills, bottom line. (laughs) Okay. So tell us what is the difference then between cognitive behavioral therapy and dialectical behavioral therapy? Such a good question. I love it. Okay. Actually, dialectical behavioral therapy is like an offshoot of cognitive behavioral therapy. It builds on cognitive behavioral therapy. And certainly, again, I am not certified in cognitive behavioral therapy, and it has grown quite substantially beyond um, you know, as as a uh, as a tool for therapists to use more so than than I have used in my career. So, but cognitive behavioral therapy is kind of like thinking your way out of things. Mm-hmm. So it's using the like the kind of the reasoning brain, right? But with dialectical behavioral therapy, there's also the acknowledgement of the fact that we have a non reasoning part of our brain that doesn't even speak English. It's the amygdala. It's it's yeah. the uh, hippocampus, there's this, these areas where, you know, you smell apple pie and that is like related for you to your extremely mean, rigid grandmother. And every time you smell apple pie, your heart starts pounding, but you're, you're not in control of that. You have to learn that that's one of the triggers and maybe get exposed to it or, or what have you. Um, cognitive behavioral therapy, in my experience, really doesn't cover that. It just says, well, that is irrational that you feel upset when you smell. <laughs> Uh, apple pie. You can hear my bias, but, you know, because I've used in my own, you know, like life, I've used 
cognitive behavioral therapy, DBT, and another favorite of mine, acceptance and commitment-based therapy. Um, and I have found cognitive behavioral therapy to be like, it's sort of beginner. It's 101, in my opinion. It's sort of recognizing um, black and white thinking, catastrophization, and, and other types of things and trying to turn your thinking around. But if you're smart enough, you can very quickly turn the thinking around Again, I can give you an example if you want. This that. is okay. I just want to say this is the best example that, or not example. This is the best um, discussion that I've ever had on the differences. Good, because I'm, I'm still glad. muddy, but now I, I get what you're saying. So, cognitive behavioral therapy is all about like the thoughts and learning how mm -hmm. to basically control your thoughts. But the reality of it is sometimes it's not about our thoughts. It's like you said, it's about that amygdala popping off. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. DBT gives us skills to deal with, like we've already planned ahead. If this happens, this is what I'm going to do. Mm -hmm. Am I getting mm -hmm. it? Absolutely. You okay. got it. In fact, cognitive behavioral therapy, the, the tenets of that, of that approach are thoughts come before feelings. Well, that's great. But like what happens when a feeling comes, comes before, before a thought? Oh my God, that's I love it. Like, you know, and that's really, that's where, now I want to say you may get, I don't know, I hope you're not going to get angry contacts or I won't because I have not um, taken up cognitive behavioral therapy as my area of expertise. So the way I see cognitive behavioral therapy may not be as robust as it is today, but that is my experience of it. And that's why I uh, chose to focus myself more on dialectical behavioral therapy and um, acceptance and commitment-based therapy for the reason that the acknowledgement of the feeling is there. And we can sort of figure out whether the thought came before the feeling, but maybe the feeling came before the thought and either way it's valid and what you do with your behavior is critical here more than anything else. And I don't know, thinking inside of your head is different than behaving, you know? And again, it sounds like you are giving that person more control over all of it. Like they actually mm -hmm. feel like I don't just need to react. There's actually something else I could do that mm -hmm. would probably make me ultimately feel better. Yeah. It's like creating a space um, mm. between the feeling and the need to react and the actual response. And so some of the skills are as simple as, as deep breathing and mindfulness or grounding, taking, you know, people I think have really kind of decided it's no more fun to say count to 10 if you're angry, but it's a great skill. <laughs> like I recommend it. If you are angry or upset, or if you feel like you want to yell at your boss or something, counting mm. to 10 in your mind gives you enough space oftentimes to not behave in a way that you will later be like, oh, you know, slapping your forehead and being like, why did I say that to that person? Or why did I do that? Yeah. Some of these skills are basic, but they are incredibly important. So you'll forget them. You're putting in a pause mm -hmm. before you allow yourself to react. Correct. I mean, that's really uh, one definition of distress tolerance, although it's it's larger than that. Distress tolerance also involves, you know, um, in terms of uh, DBT, like severe distress, like feeling, you know, thoughts that are even suicidal or really painful sadness and depression or RSD, where it's just so painful that that person didn't text you back and you're so upset about that that you feel like you just can't even live your life and have your day. 
distress tolerance is very important for that. Um, and so, yeah, learning those skills are is really useful for people with ADHD. So you started to say that you had an example. Do you remember what that was? Okay, let me think for a second. Oh, my goodness. Or just, I was, you know, a story or two that you can share of how DBT helped an ADHD client when maybe other therapies didn't, like they tried a bunch of things and what was the difference? Okay. Well, you know, I, I would say more often than not, I work with people who have RSD and cope with it. So um, I'm thinking of a recent uh, patient of mine who had was getting into this situation where she would repeatedly wind up with this enormous pile of laundry and the laundry would just like continue to pile up. And then when her partner would come and visit her apartment, she would feel embarrassed and criticized even if the partner wasn't saying anything <laughs> about the pile of laundry. They, she just felt the judgment. And so we did a few And there was no things. door that she could just shut. <laughs> no, it was all over, right? And so this is like actually how I would, how I function as a therapist or a coach, you know, in cases where people are not in Arizona where I am. But you know, we focus both on the literal behavior. So we're looking at behavior change. Like how do we break this laundry pile down into a situation where you can get it put away? Okay. And we also work on the distress tolerance aspects of things. So, mm -hmm. you know, learning some deep breathing, some self-acceptance, some mindfulness, and then working on behavioral change as well. So all of those things get wrapped up into the solution. In this particular case that I'm thinking of, we made a deal and we said, okay, you know, before your partner comes over next time, you're going to do this one-time gigantic hyper-focus put away laundry thing. And after that, we're going to work to have it broken down so that you're not stuck in this situation. We're trying to like burn the bridge as one of those DBT comments. Like we're not going to get in this situation. We're not going to allow this to happen. And so kind of coaching through that as well. I hope that makes sense. It's a little complex, but yeah, it's a process, you know, so it's like managing the emotions around doing or not doing something that you wanted to do and maybe feeling like you're disappointing someone else and then managing the behavior because the behavior was bothering both the person and I think the partner more or less. I don't think she was imagining that. Had he ever said something about it? No. And actually, but it was sort of, you know how people are just like they, if they go, if they don't like something, it was more of the feel that she got. And it felt like enough. And I didn't want to say to her, well, that sounds crazy. Well, we did talk that about like RSV. <laughs> right. We did talk about talking to the partner though, and actually putting the feelings on the table. That was the other thing, you know, nobody's perfect, even someone who doesn't have ADHD or other issues. So the partner in this case, it, it was important for, uh, for the patient of mine to talk to the partner and say like, Hey, this is what's going on and this is what I'm doing. And that sort of also broke the kind of fever pitch of feeling terrible about the pile of laundry. And so was the partner really kind of looking askance? I mean, or was she, did she just, was she just feeling that and it wasn't really true? 
I think the partner was looking askance, but also didn't realize how much the looking askance and not saying anything out Mm. loud Mm -hmm. was having on her. And so it's a little bit of both. And I often find that with interpersonal relationships. You know, people who have ADHD are great observers and great analysts, right? And so oftentimes they're picking up on physical cues and other things and body language and saying to another person, you're mad at me, or I feel like you're mad at me. And the other person's like, I don't know what you're talking about. But then when the other person kind of looks into what's going on, they're like, yeah, actually, I didn't really like that so much. So it's our intuition, (laughs) right? Yes. Yeah. So while we cannot do that, let me emphasize that it's not fair. It's not reasonable for us to say to our loved ones, I know you're mad at me, or I know you think this. What is interpersonally effective is to own how you feel and describe it to the other person and allow them to process that. So you could say, I feel when you come in my apartment door that you kind of like wrinkle your nose and look over at my laundry pile. And I, it feels like you're upset or something to me. I know this is my feeling. Am I getting this right? Can we check in on this? And that's an important skill. I can see why. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And I, you know, for what it's worth, this is not just uh, unique to ADHD. I have literally, I mean, and I don't, I don't have ADHD as you know, but I have an ADHD husband. So it probably would go the other way around. But in our case, I have said to him many times, like, what does that look on your face? Like, what does that mean? You look like you're mad. And he's like, don't tell me I'm mad when I'm not mad. <laughs> so I've had to learn over many years myself, like, because I'm just a sensitive person that it's not up to me to tell someone else what they feel like. Mm-hmm. It's up to me to say, hey, I'm getting this kind of feeling or it looks this way to me. Can I check in with you on how you feel? And then you have to believe what the person says and allow them to go through their own emotions. Sometimes people don't exactly know how they feel at first. They need time to process. Yeah. No, that sounds good. So what did she do about the laundry? Actually breaking it down and was she able to figure out a way that she wouldn't, you know, it wouldn't just be piling up like that because it sounds like it bothered her too. Yeah. So um, we came up with a bunch of different strategies, but one of them was to, because we're working closely together, um, not allow a pile to develop like that. So when laundry, like the rule we put into place that she was okay about was you do your laundry this time and, um, and it gets put away on the same day. Like that's the commitment you're making. And so then we did some scheduling and we figured out um, you know, when that would work best. And we also figured out that large loads of laundry were bad. Why am I always talking about laundry on your podcast, Tracy? What is the deal? Yes. I'm sorry. But the left, it's, it's Benny Lister. What's the problem with laundry, Vanessa? I think I do. It's, <laughs> I think it comes up a lot. I think it comes up a lot in people's lives and definitely people with ADHD. We could also just call this dishes in the sink, by the way. Yeah. It could be the same scenario or, or you know, like wiping down the kitchen counters or what have you. Yeah. Last time I was, um, uh, I, we talked, I talked about um, la- using laundry as movement or exercise. <laughs> and anyway. well, did you hear that study that I think I just read it in the Washington Post? They call them 
30 minute couch potatoes. I think that's what they call them. So, you know, those of us who work out at least 30 minutes every day, but then we're Mm -hmm. completely inactive the rest of the day because we're sitting at a computer, sitting at a Mm -hmm. desk working and that we can be as unhealthy as people who don't do anything. Because yeah. we're so inactive and they were talking about things like laundry and dishes and getting up in the middle and doing these projects, you know, rather than just being glued to the uh, screen. Yeah. And breaking those things up. And mm-hmm. I would say I, I am fond of calling that exercise snacking, which is, I think is a very good idea. <laughs> so when you want to go like you're watching TV or playing video games or something and you want to go to the kitchen and get something to eat as a snack, maybe consider an exercise snack instead. So just like maybe stretching <laughs> and, um, and then if you have difficulty, this is another theme I think you and I have spoken about, you know, in terms of exercise or movement, right? Um, not looking at it like you need that solid 30 minutes, like 30 minutes works just as well five times six. So you could do five minute exercise snacks six times a day. And that may work better for your ADHD brain. You know, we have to be uh, nimble in our solutions for things. And I think that helps people back to our original topic of regulating their emotions. Because when you start to feel mastery, things feel better. Uh, Emotions are not as negative feeling all the time and successes come into play. And then it sort of builds on itself that way. Well, and also like um, Marnie, who was on the last podcast, we were talking about movement. And Mm -hmm. why is it that we have this attitude that, oh, my gosh, if I don't work out at least for 30 minutes in one set, you know, Mm -hmm. it doesn't count. Mm Which is ridiculous. Mm -hmm. If you can do five minutes, six times during the day, just, you know, some sort of, you know, movement that gets your heart rate up a little bit, why wouldn't that work? Mm -hmm. But we have this idea because that's what they, quotes, right, they say is the only way we can do it. It's their way or we're not doing it. And that's just BS. Yeah. Not only that, it's a huge setup to fail for someone with ADHD because perfectionism and ADHD are like BFFs or best friends. Talk and about so, that. Yeah. It's like, you know, if, if we talk about exercise, so it's like you set out to exercise um, and you're like, I have to do 30 minutes on the elliptical. And if I don't, that's not good enough. And so when you decide you're going to exercise, then you say to yourself, like the, the process goes, well, I can't do 30 minutes. I'm too tired and I can't do it. And I'm going to fail. I'm set up to fail. Forget it. And you just skip the whole thing. So if you were to flip the script on that, it would work better. So I'm getting on the elliptical trainer or I'm taking a walk for five minutes. That's it. I expect five minutes, not more. And um, see how that goes and look at it as exercise snacks and allow yourself to extend if you like more than five minutes. That's up to you. But you know, down with perfectionism. Let's let's really avoid that because it paralyzes people. And our problem is starting. So chances mm-hmm. are you're going to start the five minutes and then it's like, oh, I started. Now it's easy. Now I don't want to quit. Right. I mean, yes, yes. The transition is so important. It's like you're doing this and you have to transition to that. And that is why that starting piece, the initiation piece becomes so 
challenging. Now let's add an additional challenge. Now, not only do you have to change what you're doing, change your position and like stop paying attention to the 900 other things that are going on in the environment at the same time and focus yourself on doing exercise that you don't even really want to do, but you've set yourself up to fail because you're like, I have to do 30 minutes. Well, you know what? How about like 27 minutes? I would really focus on really not being rigid either, which is hard. I know that people don't necessarily think of people with ADHD as rigid, but there is a certain rigidity of thinking that comes in to kind of setting yourself up to fail through perfectionism. It's like, I have to do it this way or I do nothing at all. I've seen it over and over again with my son and his homework. It's like, well, I've already like gotten behind. So I just forget it. Exactly. It's like, no, don't, don't do that. That is very, yeah. that is very counterproductive for you. Mm. Okay. Yeah. We are totally over time, but I need to ask you one more question that I've been dying to know your answer to. So, but before I do that, can you tell us what is borderline personality disorder? We hear it all the time, adjacent to ADHD. Yeah. So um, people with ADHD are, do not automatically have borderline personality right. disorder. Let's, let's put that like right, you know, in bright lights, like these things are different from each other and they're different in the DSM and the diagnostic manual, but Borderline personality disorder, sometimes called BPD, is a pattern of difficulty with relationships and emotional responses. In the UK, it's called EUPD. It's called like emotional instability disorder. Um, and it just essentially is an issue where a person really feels a tremendous amount of pain and suffering from their internal emotional experience. This is something I think people with ADHD can relate to. But then the behaviors and the sort of functional interpersonal stuff that goes on for somebody with borderline personality disorder tends to be more severe and um, kind of, for lack of a better word, and this is not to say it's performative, but dramatic. Like sometimes there's things like, you know, uh, self-harm or various disorders that come along with it, like substance use disorders or eating disorders. And so it's kind of a package deal of, um, and it's a trauma response. Uh, it oftentimes, like in about 70% of cases in borderline personality disorder, it's a response to early trauma. And it's just how this person deals with uh, tremendous emotional pain and suffering, and it becomes maladaptive. I hope that. Okay. So a couple of years ago, I heard a well-known psychologist um, I think she's in the Netherlands, and she's very, um, very well-versed in ADHD. And I heard her speaking with a therapist about the fact that, I think it was the therapist who brought it up, that he believed that borderline personality disorder is basically ADHD and extreme early trauma. And I think they may have said specifically sexual abuse. Yeah. You're asking my opinion about that yeah. or I'm asking your opinion. Um, I can't agree with that per se, um, because that's a that's a really big leap. But what I would say is that there are theories of borderline personality disorder that is a diagnosis that is often used interchangeably uh and more often for women. 
uh, whereas men are diagnosed with PTSD. Yeah. Oh uh, my God. Post-traumatic stress disorder. So while, yeah, yeah. And, um, and there's been a lot, there's been research on that and there's a lot of, um, controversy about, uh, the borderline personality diagnosis at large because it has been very much stigmatized in mental health circles and and more work needs to be done because actually people with borderline personality disorder often feel very desperate and it's actually a really good prognosis diagnosis. But with ADHD, right, there are certain overlapping characteristics where you might see ADHD being like similar to certain features of BPD, but it's not that entire package of difficulties with interpersonal relationships and um, unstable moods and unstable behaviors. Um, it, ADHD folks who just have ADHD show up that, in the world. But wouldn't that, that, wouldn't that be the trauma part, the extreme trauma part with could the ADHD? Be, yeah. Absolutely. And I, but I just want to say to the listeners, just so, because this is like sort of a deeply intellectual kind of look at ADHD and BPD, you know, these are not self-diagnoses that I think that you should make. Like, for example, if you tend to have a temper tantrum now and again, that does not mean that you have borderline personality disorder. Um, And, uh, you know, it's just important to be able to keep the boundary there between those two and not, I don't want to confuse anybody and let them think, oh my gosh, look, maybe I have borderline personality. Maybe I have a personality disorder. I'm not fond of the concept of personality disorder. It's so pejorative anyway. It's like, oh, your personality is screwed up. Like, no, <laughs> like then why are the personality disorders typically, you know, handed out to women? Yeah, that happens a lot. And um yeah, I mean, like my interest in borderline personality disorder began towards the late latter end of my um, uh, graduate school career. And at that time, Trauma and Recovery, uh, the book that postulated PTSD and BPD were the same thing that were diagnosed in different genders, being that like PTSD for men, BPD for women, um, that that first caught my eye and I have never forgotten it and always been interested in BPD in, in my career. Um because this is a whole other ball of wax, but because many more people are out there with emotional instability issues and frankly, probably borderline personality disorder than are identified mm-hmm. or seen even in the literature, because oftentimes professionals will not even make that notation in the chart because it's so pejorative. So it's it's a big, wow. this is a big meatball for us. It's another time. Wow. <laughs> And think about it. I mean, if you are diagnosed with PTSD, like I think, oh, you're a veteran or, you know, something really awful happened to you. And so the thought is, oh, my gosh, you poor thing. Versus when you hear a borderline personality disorder, I think a lot of people think, oh, crazy. Right. Yes. And it's and very meanly. Yeah. And there's a lot of different forms of BPD. And actually, you know, if people go and visit my Instagram, you'll see I do a lot of um, stuff about BPD because I'm an advocate for people that borderline personality disorder. I work with people who are safe enough to work as outpatients and an individual mm-hmm. work with me on skills. Um, and, you know, I feel that these folks are people who are just people 
who have a really, really hard time managing emotions in in a way that's effective. And then that just vomits out onto their whole life. It just ruins relationships and makes things difficult. And it's a pattern sort of behavior. And this for the audience may sound like kind of similar to ADHD, but it's... Oh, no, it's not. You know, it's like not the same at all because it really shows up differently. I think people with ADHD have trouble with things like being organized in their time management and um, things of that nature. Whereas BPD, it's a lot about the emotional instability. Well, it's way, way more extreme, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. And I definitely think that, uh, you know, we, we don't want to give anybody the impression that even if they sometimes feel like their emotions are unstable and they have ADHD, that they also have borderline personality <laughs> disorder. Unlikely. But, you know, if you certainly want to go and talk to a professional about that, you can do. Um, but they are very distinct um, processes. I hear you and I could talk to you forever, Vanessa. Thank you so much for spending time with us. Where can people find you if they want to know more about you and what you do? You can find me on my website, vanessagorelkin.com, which I'm sure will be in the show notes for the spelling. Um, and I'm also on Instagram uh, at humanist underscore therapist. And I'd love to hear from people. Actually, the last time um, I was on this show, I really got a lovely response and I appreciated all of the messages I received. And so don't be afraid to reach out and ask a question. You know, this audience is a really terrific one and it's a great thing that you're getting to listen to this show. So I hope you enjoyed it today. Wonderful. Vanessa, thank you again so much for spending time with us here today. My pleasure. And before I leave you, just a quick reminder, the doors for our first ever January Your ADHD Brain is A-OK program are open. And if you want to save $100, use the code HOLIDAYS100. You can go to tracyoutsuka.com forward slash A-OK for more information. I would love to have you join us. So that's what I have for you for this week. If you like this episode with Vanessa, please let us know by leaving a review. Our goal is to change the conversation around ADHD, helping as many women as we possibly can learn how their ADHD brains work so that they too may discover their amazing strengths. As always, you're listening to ADHD for Smartass Women. Come join me at tracyoutsuka.com. Thank you so much for listening and I will see you here next week. You've been listening to the ADHD for Smartass Women podcast. I'm your host, Tracy Outsuka, and we're available on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Not coincidentally, ADHD for Smartass Women, it's also the name of our free Facebook group. We're a totally smartass community of successful, ambitious women who share our ADHD wins, questions, and workarounds. Join us at tracyoutsuka.com where you can also find more information on our Your ADHD Brain is A-OK system. I spy a happier life for us, and I'll see you again next week.